Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. In today's episode, I'm going to break down the testimonies of six different people. I know that sounds like a lot of testimony, but right now I want you to look at your podcast player app and take a look at the length of this episode. It's not very long, right? And now consider the fact that in this short amount of time, I'm going to cover three very important topics. Timing, the crime scene investigation, and forensics. The reason that I'm pointing out the brevity of how long it's going to take me to cover these topics is because in six years of examining trial transcripts and investigating murder cases, I have never seen a more blatant disregard for the search for actual evidence. Houston Police Department investigators set their sights on Jennifer Jeffley within hours of the murder, and they never bothered to even consider that someone else may have killed Catalina. This is Season 10, Episode 10, Blinders. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Timing. Timing has been the Achilles heel of this case from the very beginning. We have a basic idea of some events that occurred on the morning of the murder, but we don't know when any of these events actually occurred. We know that Craig Peters paid Jennifer that morning at around 8.45 a.m., and we know that she went to Janet Dorsey's apartment to call him, but we don't know exactly how long she was there. This is information that would have been easy to obtain by HPD. All they would have had to do is pull the phone records, but they decided not to do that. 
but why? I have a lot of these why questions. And the closer I look at the case, I think the answer to all of them is that Detective Allen didn't want to find any, quote, bad evidence. Bad evidence is a term used by prosecutors and detectives. It means that they just won't look for evidence in places where it may hurt their case. Since they're required to turn over everything they find to the defense, if they suspect that a particular inquiry might weaken their case, then they just avoid it. It's a despicable practice that is not at all uncommon, and it seems to be an overarching theme in this case. For example, I've requested specifically the dispatch log for the morning of the murder on multiple occasions. I'm told by HPD that it doesn't exist, that they just didn't save it, and so I requested it from the DA's office. Surely they would have wanted it for their file if they cared at all about figuring out the timing of the murder, but they don't have it either. No one actually knows what time 911 was called. I even checked the first arriving officer, Officer Peekert's report. And guess what? No time is given for when he was called to the scene or when he arrived. There's also no EMS report in the case file, even though there's evidence that it existed and at some point the police had it. So I thought I would look in some other documents for times. Doris Gibson is the nurse who administered CPR on Catalina. Maybe she described a time in her statement when she happened upon the scene. But no dice. No time is mentioned in her report or her statement. The only time that we see in the case file is one that happens to be convenient for the state's case. And that's June Sages, who says that she thinks that it was around 9.30 a.m. when she saw who we presume to be Jen knocking on her door. Since Jen got the page from Craig at 8.45 it's reasonable to think that she would have had time to walk to Janet's, make her calls, and walk back in time to initiate the attack at 9.30 a.m. And since no phone records or pager records were pulled, and no other times were entered into any other reports or statements, 9.30 was all we had to go with. But the problem is that Mrs. Sage is hardly a reliable source of information when it comes to time. It literally says in the report that she was confusing the timing of events as she was being interviewed. And at the time that she gave her statement, she was being attended to by EMS. So it's fair to say that she was distracted. Nonetheless, 9.30 is the time that we have to work with. But, thankfully, several of you savvy listeners caught something that I overlooked last week. When Dr. Joyce Carter testified at trial, surprise, surprise, the DA never asked her about time of death. But she did list time of death in her actual autopsy report. In a report, she writes, quote, Pronouncement of death was at 9.15 a.m. This is beyond incompetence or even innocent mistakes. In my opinion, this case represents a concerted effort to avoid this timeline altogether. I believe that Detective Allen knew that timing was a major issue for his case against Jennifer. I just don't see any other explanation for the times being whitewashed from the entire case file. Catalina was pronounced dead at the scene by EMS personnel. And since Dr. Carter specifically notes 9.15 a.m. in her report, that means that there was an EMS report generated and she had access to it. What she didn't do was just pull a time out of a hat. And that time, 9.15 a.m., 
presents another big problem for the state. Let's work backwards from the 915 pronouncement of death. Before EMS can pronounce someone dead, they have to get permission via phone or radio from medical control to cease life-saving measures. Before they can do that, they have to evaluate the patient. In Keith Truesdale's statement, he says that after Doris Gibson came in, she rolled Catalina over and began CPR. At that time, he heard or saw EMS approaching. When they arrived on the scene, he told them that he thought Catalina had hit her head. But when they opened up her shirt, he and they saw the stab wounds on her chest. Now, I'm not sure about Texas protocols, but I can speak to my own experience in Michigan. In Michigan, and I believe it would likely be the same in Texas, EMS is required to hook up an EKG before declaring someone's dead. You have to do what we call running a strip to show a flatline or a systole. Then we would call medical control and report what we had found and request permission to cease all life-saving measures. Then we would check our watch and write down the official time of death. My point is, even though the process may be slightly different in Texas, that the process takes a few minutes. They don't just look at a body and say, yep, they're dead. There's a procedure to follow. So if Catalina was pronounced dead at 9.15 a.m., and before that, the managers arrived with Eva, then Lavana ran back to the office and she grabs Keith Truesdale on the way, telling him to go help. He then goes to the scene, jumps the fence, looks around, opens the door. Pam steps in. The two of them look for a phone. Jennifer and Eva follow them in. They're told to leave. Then Pam leaves, and she comes across Doris Gibson and asks her to help. Doris then goes in, rolls Catalina over, checks her for a pulse, and starts CPR. And it's then that EMS shows up and begins assessing. So if all of that had to occur first, then when did Eva run to the manager's office to begin with? Based on my own experiences, and of course, give or take here, but I'm going to estimate that EMS was on the scene for five minutes before Catalina was actually declared dead. Then I'd add another five minutes before that for Eva running to the office and everything that occurred before EMS arrived. So that would mean that Eva took off running from the scene towards the office at around 9.05 a.m. So now let's compare that to Jennifer's timeline. She gets a page at 8.45 a.m. She says that she washes her hair and brushes her teeth then heads out to Janet's to use the phone. Both Youngster and Eva confirm that she got up and left, and Eva says that Jen told her that she was going to a phone to return the page. So let's say Jen leaves the apartment at 8.50 a.m., giving her a couple of minutes to get herself together and head out the door. Then she walks all the way to the front building of the apartment complex to use Janet's phone. Janet confirms that Jen did come to her apartment that morning and she did use the phone. Let's give Jen three minutes to make that walk. So let's say now it's around 8.53 a.m. She says that she called and talked to Craig for a few minutes. He had to hang up. She looked up the number to the phone company and called them. And then while she was on hold, Craig called back and they chatted about her home situation for a few minutes. And then they hung up. Police never tried to confirm the call to the phone company, but Craig does confirm the other two calls. Since police never pulled the phone records, we have no idea exactly how long these calls were. But for the sake of this discussion, let's just say that she was at Janet's for, I think, what's fair would be around 10 minutes. And that brings us to somewhere around 9.03 a.m. 
then about a three-minute walk back to Eva's apartment. And that puts her back on the scene at around 9.06 a.m., almost the exact same time that we estimate Eva took off running for the office. Obviously, these times aren't exact. You can give or take a minute or two from any element of this. But the point is, if we bookend the page Jennifer got at 8.45 a.m. and EMS pronouncing Catalina dead at 9.15 a.m., there's just no time for Jen to have been involved in the murder. Period. There's just no getting around it. Katie and Youngster said they heard screaming before they heard Eva opening the front door which occurred well before she ran to the office. And at that time, no matter how much you try to fudge these times, Jennifer was at Janet's apartment. Like I said in this week's follow-up, and I've said time and time again over the years, if the prosecution convicted the right person, then time, attention to detail, and technology will always make their case stronger. That's literally the model I use to screen out cases that are submitted to me. When I look closer and they look more guilty, they're probably guilty. But in this case, we see the opposite. The closer we look at the case against Jennifer Jeffley that was already weak to begin with, the more it falls apart. And I think that the state knew that. I don't think it was a mistake that they didn't present a timeline of the attack. Because they couldn't. But when we do it, we take the few known times that we have and make some reasonable assumptions for things like how long the walk takes and how long it takes to brush your teeth, we end up with a timeline that actually does make sense. By my estimation, Eva ran for the office at around 9.05 a.m. And I also estimate that Jennifer returned from Janet's at around 9.05 a.m. Now let's go back and look at Jennifer's first statement. In that statement, she says that she turned the corner on a return from Janet's and she saw Eva at the bottom of the stairs. And she was there when she ran to the office. And then we look at Eva's first statement. In Eva's first statement, she says that she thinks she saw Jennifer approaching the scene from Janet's as she took off running for the office. It all fits into everything except the state's case against Jennifer Jeffley. Moving on with our timing theme, I found some testimony from trial that actually does give us the dates regarding the discovery of the wallet. James Hasty was a leasing agent at the Green Arbor Apartments. He's the one that rented out Eva's apartment after she left. In his eight-page testimony, he confirms that Mr. Madrano painted the apartment on May 26 of 1997. So that would be the day the wallet was first discovered, just shy of seven months after the murder. He also testifies that the new tenant moved in on June 1st, which means that Keith Truesdale would have found the wallet sometime between the 26th and the 1st. So the timeline of the wallet goes something like this. The murder happens on Tuesday, October 29th. Eva gives two statements to police that day, one oral and one written, and Jennifer does the same. Police also searched the apartment that day. The next day, the 30th, Jennifer is arrested. Then police return to Green Arbor the next day, Friday the 31st, and Eva isn't there. They contact her, and she comes to the apartment to meet them. She says that she didn't stay there the night before. 
They inform her then that Jennifer has been arrested for the murder. Then they search her apartment again. And this is when she gives her now third statement where she says that she thinks the voice that she heard inside of Catalina's apartment was actually Jennifer. While she's on site that day, she puts in her notice to move out. In Hasey's testimony, he says that she put in her notice on the 31st and she was officially out of the apartment on Monday the 3rd. But we have no evidence that she ever actually returned to the apartment after that Friday. And then, seven months later, Urbano finds the wallet and leaves it on the counter. And then sometime within the next five days, Truesdale finds it and turns it over to Officer Cobb. So Cobb has the wallet in his possession no later than June 1st. Then it rides around in his car from then until August 28th when he finally turns it in, nearly three months later. Our last bit in this segment on timing comes from a new character, Zaragoza Garza. Mr. Garza's testimony was used by the state to try to put Jennifer on the crime scene. But you take a listen to what he had to say and tell me what you think. Mr. Garza testifies that he was living in apartment 132, and he was working nights on the day of the murder. When he got off work that morning, he went home, and then at 7.45 a.m., he left to go to the store. As he was heading down the main drive in his car, he happened to notice a woman standing on the stairs looking into what he later learned was Catalina's patio. He approached the police when they were there investigating to tell him what he saw, because when he returned to the complex, he noticed all the police activity around the same place where he had seen the woman. He says in his testimony that the woman was alone, just standing on the stairs looking into the patio. He only saw her from the back as he drove by. He describes the woman as black, 25 years old or late 20s, with reddish hair that was pulled back in a, quote, ponytail or something. She was wearing khaki-colored shorts with a, quote, cuff that came up to her knee and a dark maroon or dark bluish shirt with a collar. He goes on to say that the woman was light-skinned. He actually pointed out a woman in the audience in the courtroom to demonstrate the shade of the woman's skin. The thing that really got my attention in his testimony was the time. I don't think we can put a lot of weight into any physical description that he gives. I mean, for what it's worth, Jennifer was sitting right in front of him when he chose someone behind her in the audience to describe the woman's skin color, but he was in a moving vehicle from a distance of over 100 feet away, and he only saw the woman from the back. So I'd hardly say that his physical description is reliable. But what's important is that he testifies that this occurred at 7.45 a.m. That jumped out at me because the only other mention of anything happening in this time frame came from Eva. In her written statement, she says that she received a page from Tommy at exactly 7.44 a.m. Jennifer, Katie, and Youngster were all sleeping in the back bedroom, and Eva was alone in the living room. She is the only one in that apartment who could have left at 7.45 without the other three noticing. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. For the rest of this episode, I'm going to give you all of the information that we have about the crime scene investigation, the DNA testing, and the fingerprint analysis. Originally, I had planned to do a full episode on each of these topics. But as it turns out, I can tell you everything that was done to investigate this crime scene in about 10 minutes. All of the testimonies mentioned in today's episode are posted on our website in their entirety. I'm not going to waste your time by reading through all of them. I'm just going to hit the important parts. We'll start with crime scene investigator Lorenzo Verbitsky. He received the call to report to the crime scene at 10.30 a.m., and he arrived there at 10.50. He was briefed by officers on scene, and then he proceeded to do a walkthrough of the apartment. Next, he fired up the video camera and filmed the crime scene video that we have posted on our YouTube channel. He does make very clear that nothing was touched or moved before he began filming. The scene at that point was exactly as it was when police arrived, according to his testimony. After filming the crime scene video, he then went through the scene with a 35mm camera and took all of the crime scene photos that we have on our website. And again, he testifies nothing was touched prior to taking these photos. Next, he took measurements and notes that he later used to create a diagram of the scene that will be posted on our website under today's episode. And still, to this point, nothing has been touched or processed. I keep pointing that out because we have these three drinking glasses in the middle of the living room floor. It seems from his testimony that those were not put there by police, so they were part of the crime scene. Although, you'd never know it from his report or testimony because they are never mentioned. Not once. Evidently, Verbitsky didn't even wonder why three glasses might be just lying about the living room floor. Apparently, neither the prosecutor or defense attorney wondered about it either. On page 17 of 60, Verbitsky finally starts getting into some of the details of the crime scene, although this is still more of an overview. But he says that most of the apartment was undisturbed and that the crime occurred from the patio through the living room and into the foyer where Catalina's body was found, which fits very nicely in with Jennifer's confession. But the first thing that I noticed is what he doesn't say here. In his written report, Verbitsky writes, that the screen door appeared to have been locked and pried open. No mention of that here. And then I took a look at the full set of photos that I just received from HPD. And sure enough, there are photos of the door and jam that were not used at trial. I have them posted on our website. From these photos, it is very clear that Catalina's attackers used some kind of tool to pry the door open. The latch appears to be in the locked position, and there are obvious pry marks on both the door and the door jam. And also, the door is bent outward. It wasn't pushed from the outside in, 
It was pried back from the inside out. All of this was left out of trial. The photos and any testimony about the door being pried open with a tool. Because Jennifer never says anything about a tool in her confession. Bad evidence. On page 20 of the testimony, this is a third of the way through his entirety of his testimony, the DA finally asked Verbitsky, quote, what evidentiary items of significance he found in the apartment. And here it is. He lifted a total of four fingerprints. Two from the front door, one from the kitchen drawer containing the silverware, and one from the outside glass of the patio door. He collected several pieces of broken pottery, scattered from the area near Catalina's body and into the living room, and Catalina's glasses that were found on the floor by her body. He took samples of potting soil, loose hair that was found near the body, and the piece of plastic that he says had, quote, small blood spatters on it. As I've noted, those spatters turned out later not to be blood. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is it. The direct examination of the crime scene investigator went on for a total of 34 pages. The shortest I have ever seen. It took a total of only 14 pages to break down all of the evidence that was collected, and that includes the defense taking Verbitsky on Vordier twice. He spent a total of two hours at the crime scene and collected his evidence, four fingerprints, a piece of plastic, some broken pottery, a pair of glasses, a couple hairs, and some dirt. That's it. He didn't even try dusting for fingerprints anywhere else in the apartment. And as I was reading this, I'm thinking, surely we'd get more information from cross-examination. But nope. Coyne spends almost the entirety of cross asking a bunch of questions about blood spatter. Not actually trying to reconstruct the scene, He's literally asking what blood spatter is and the difference between spatter and transfer. Cross was six pages long. For redirect, Glazer plays the crime scene video. And the only thing new that comes out of this portion of the testimony is that Verbitsky didn't see any footprints or items of evidentiary value in the area around the outside of the patio. And then Coin comes back up for recross. He begins by asking more about blood spatter for two pages, and then we finally get to some new information. Mostly not new about the scene, but more about what Verbitsky didn't do. He didn't collect the two purses on the dining table as evidence. He didn't collect the knife in the kitchen sink or any of the knives in the apartment as evidence. He notes the steak knife from the sink in his report, but he didn't collect it. He says that he and Detective Allen looked at the assortment of knives to determine that they didn't have any evidentiary value. So they just left them. I don't even see any indication in his report or testimony that he even opened the purses and looked inside. One is still zipped closed and one is unzipped in the crime scene photos, and we never hear anything about their contents. He did, however, collect a total of three, count them three, blood samples from the wall by Catalina's head and the pooled blood on the floor. And then recross ends with Verbitsky stating, quote, I believe I looked in the garbage cans, end quote. And that's it. That's the entirety of the stellar job that Lorenzo Verbitsky did investigating this crime scene. He committed a grand total of two hours of his time to it, collected four fingerprints, five items of evidence, and three blood samples. This guy makes old Maurice look like Columbo. Moving on to forensics, 
two women from the HBD crime lab testified about the evidence that was collected by Verbitsky. First up is Cleva West. Her testimony is seven pages long, including the breakdown of her CV. She's testifying about some hair analysis. Verbitsky collected a hair sample from the floor near Catalina's body. The ME also found two hairs in Catalina's left hand and one under a fingernail on her right hand. There were a total of four hairs analyzed. For comparison, Miss West was provided with known hair samples from Catalina and Jennifer, and no one else. Her findings were that the four samples, quote, had some microscopic characteristics similar to Catalina, and that they were, quote, dissimilar to the Jennifer hairs in racial origin. And that's it. That's all the testing that was done on the hairs. Since the microscopic look excluded Jennifer, there was no need for a DNA profile. It was just assumed that the hairs came from Catalina. I mean, after all, they did have, quote, some microscopic characteristics similar to hers. Moving on, we have the short testimony of HPD lab tech Christy Kim. She's a serologist, and she's on the stand talking about the DNA testing that was done. The only DNA testing that was done in this case was from swabs from the pieces of white pottery. Ms. Kim testifies that she was informed that the pottery was used as a weapon, and Detective Allen believed that the killer may have cut themselves in the process. Remember, his assumption at this point was that the cuts on Jennifer's hand came from the pottery. So, with that information, she thought it best to look for small bloodstains on the pottery. Her thought, which I think makes perfect sense, was that the large pools of blood were likely Catalina's, so she looked for the smaller stains. Miss Kim swabbed six different blood stains from the pottery. That's important to point out. She wasn't swabbing for touch DNA. She was only testing blood. So after processing these blood stains, DNA profiles were discovered on some of them. It's not stated exactly how many of the samples produce profiles, but it says some of them. Jennifer Jeffley was excluded as the contributor of any of the blood that was tested. Catalina's DNA was found on all of the usable samples, along with at least two other unknown subjects that were not Jennifer Jeffley. Christy Kim testified that there were at least three contributors in the blood samples. One was Catalina, and the other two were unknown. And of course, the samples were only compared to two people, Catalina Palomino and Jennifer Jeffley. They were never entered into any database, nor were they compared to Eva, Katie, Youngster, or anyone else. None of those people were ever even asked to give fingerprints or DNA samples, to my knowledge. And according to Ms. Kim, the HPD crime lab in 1997 did not possess the technology to even determine if the DNA was from a male or female. All they knew is that it wasn't Catalina's and it wasn't Jennifer's. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Last up is fingerprint analyst Jim Schraub. He also works for the HPD Crime Lab. His testimony is 30 pages long, and it boils down to this. Of the four fingerprint lifts that Verbitsky collected, supposedly none were usable except the print found in the outside glass of the patio door. As I've mentioned previously in other episodes, that print, he says, matches Jennifer Jeffley. No surprise there. But in reading his testimony, I found myself a bit perplexed for several reasons. Number one, I was shocked that the only usable print came from the glass. Now, you might think the glass is the best possible place to find a usable fingerprint, but you'd be wrong. It's actually the worst. A few years ago, Mike and I set out to get a set of fingerprints for a case that we've covered. You'll hear more about this before too long, hopefully, but I really can't talk about it at this point. But here's the part that I can share that's relevant to this discussion. The plan I came up with was to get the suspect to touch some glass. In my ignorance, I thought that glass would be the best surface. And it worked. The suspect grabbed the glass, leaving five visible fingerprints. We then carefully packaged the glass and drove it all the way down to Mississippi to a highly accredited fingerprint lab. The technician allowed us to watch the process of collecting the prints. He explained to us that glass is the worst possible material to capture usable prints. You see, what a fingerprint is, is the oils that secrete out of the pores of the ridges on your prints. It smears and smudges on glass. Now, to the naked eye, prints look great on glass. But in a lot of cases, they're worthless. As it turns out, the best material for prints is actually paper. Now, he did manage to pull a few usable partial prints from the glass, but it took work. There was a long chemical process that took hours. And in the end, he had to photograph the prints. He couldn't lift them with powder. He said that using powder and tape on glass will almost always smudge the prints and make them unusable. So, I told you all that to tell you this. It did not make any sense to me that the only usable prints in the apartment came from a tape lift off the glass. I became even more concerned when Schraub testified that none of the other lifts contained sufficient detail to make an ID. They were unusable. When I was looking through the additional crime scene photos that I recently received, I saw three pictures that were not used at trial. They're all of the lifts that were taken off the door by Catalina's body. These aren't just fingerprints. These are full handprints. Bigger than shit. Like someone was propping themselves up against the door with their right hand during the attack. One of the handprints, the clearest one, is probably two feet off the floor and looks like it had to have been the killer's. And it also looks very, very clean and clear. And also, a painted door like that is a much better material to get prints off of than glass. But Schraub says that it was unusable. But when you look at these photos on the website, you'll see why I was suspicious. Like, what part doesn't have sufficient detail? It's a full handprint. 
all five fingers and the palm. I'm having a hard time believing that none of it was sufficient. And that's not to mention the lift from the drawer in the kitchen. That one's not pictured anywhere. I have zero pictures of that fingerprint lift. Not in my original request and not even in this last set of photos that came from HPD. All of this had me suspicious enough to do a little Googling. Something seems very hinky here. Not necessarily about the print on the patio door. I mean, it is strange that he was able to pull that print with tape and that we don't have any photos of the dusting of that area where he took the print, supposedly. But also, in literally every statement Jennifer made, she says that she jumped the fence into the patio at one point or another. So it's not surprising that her print was found there. But I was more concerned with the process in general. The fact that none of the other prints contain sufficient detail for comparison. That just does not make any sense to me. So I punched James Schraub into Google. Go ahead and do it yourself, and you'll find a bunch of articles about how in 2009 an HPD internal investigation was focused on him and two other examiners. Now, the end result was in 2010, HPD cleared Schraub, and then he immediately retired. But I dug a little further and was able to find the actual audit that started the whole investigation. It's now posted on our website, and this is what the audit found. The auditors pulled a selection of random cases that Schraub worked on for review, all from 2008 and 2009, 60 cases in total that were his specifically. Of the 60 cases, 35, or 58%, were found to have, quote, technical errors in his findings. 32 of those errors, get this, were that Schraub claimed in his report that the prints did not contain sufficient detail for comparison, when in fact, the prints were usable. He just said that they weren't. And in seven of the 60 cases reviewed, he actually made a positive ID for the prints and didn't report it. And in two of the cases, subjects were ID'd and he straight up reported those people as cleared. So that's the physical and forensic evidence against Jennifer a fingerprint found on the outside of the patio door. Hairs found in Catalina's hands weren't Jennifer's, and no testing was done to determine whose they actually were. There were two unknown blood samples found on the murder weapon that were only ever compared to Jennifer and Catalina. And a fingerprint examiner with a known track record for lying about his findings says that none of the prints inside the crime scene were usable. And with that, now you understand the title of this episode. Blinders. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. 
Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.